Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare, the show that shares stories, experiences, and advice from notable and innovative leaders in healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Leah Witchick. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare. I'm your host, Leah Witchick. Several of you have written to me asking to know a little bit more about me, my background, where I started, and what brought me to the place that I'm at now. So I thought for today I would invite my good friend Mark Armstrong to interview me. So the tables are turned and I am really excited to share a little bit about my life and my career and what makes me tick so that you can get a better sense of who I am. Here we go. Thanks so much for being here and I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Yes, uh, this is Mark Armstrong. I'm the one who actually does the intros. And Leah's actually invited me today to do a very special uh, podcast all about actually Leah. I guess lots of people have been asking questions. They want to know more about her. So she invited me back uh, to do the interview today. Leah, thank you very much for having me. Oh, well, thanks for being here, Mark. It's a pleasure to be able to chat with you. And uh... I have to tell everyone that Mark is a good friend of mine as well. So it's really fun to have him here. Yes, I actually grew up with Leah. So I've got lots of uh, intricate, embarrassing stories that we'll be talking. She's, no, she's giving me the signal. Okay, we'll just, uh, we'll skip across <laughs> that there. Uh, <laughs> no, we've known for a long time. I'm actually a, a broadcaster myself. So I've been doing that for many years. So Leah thought that uh, I'd be a good fit today to come on and actually interview her about uh, her life and how uh, she got to where she is right now. So it's quite the harrowing tale, uh, mostly because she's known me throughout it. So that's that's been a big problem. <laughs> All right, Leah, well, let's let's start things off. Let's, you know, so where did you grow up? I was actually born just outside of Edmonton um, in a small town called Beaumont. So some of you may know it. It's not so small of a town now. And uh, kind of spent my early years there and moved to Calgary shortly thereafter. And I have been here ever since. So I'm not quite a Calgary native, but pretty close. Now, of course, a big question. So you, you don't cheer for the Eskimos, though, correct? Or the Oilers? I'm a Stamps fan all the way. Yeah, I'm loyal to my Stamps. Which is good. That's why we're still friends. Uh, now, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so then you grew up here and uh, went to high school here. Now, after high school, so you, you did all the, of course, awkward teenager stuff that we all did. But what were your ambitions? Boom, you're out of high school. What were your ambitions out of high school? Well, it's a good question because I knew right away that I was going to do university because I was one of those people that was actually super excited to do university. Um, but when I started university, I actually started with the intent of becoming an archaeologist. I'd always been really interested in archaeology, uh, history, you know, all of those pieces. And uh, so started with a lot of courses in archaeology, um, loved them all, and also realized along the way that if I was going to be an archaeologist, I would need to do a lot of school. <laughs> um, you know, we're looking at a PhD kind of thing. So I started to think about, okay, so if I'm not going to spend my life looking at and working with dead people, maybe I'll start to look at working with uh, 
living people and actually switched to nursing. My mom is a nurse, so I come from a line of nurses, and uh, definitely I haven't looked back since. I, I loved it, and it was a wonderful experience. I was going to say, yeah, so how did you find the nursing school experience? It was good. I mean, it was really hard, I have to admit. Uh, it, I mean, of course, it was hard from the perspective of it was a lot of work. Um, you know, there was a lot of studying, of course, like any other program. I think. What I found really perhaps surprising when I did my nursing degree was how much it actually changed me as a person. Um, when you start to do something like that and start to work with people on that type of level, it really does create the space for you to take a really hard look at yourself and to really figure out what's important to you. You know, that idea of tapping into your values, um, you know, typically someone who's the age of 22 isn't necessarily thinking about those existential things like values um, or your life's journey or whatnot. But in nursing, because you're dealing with such complexity and you're dealing with a lot of emotion, it is something that you start to think about. So I think that was really surprising for me was how much I really had to take that hard look at myself and think about who, who am I as a person um, and how do I translate that when I'm caring for other people. Did you find your, uh, your professors like the university helped facilitate that change? Because obviously that change needs to happen when you're looking, you know, you're not dealing with a photocopier, you're dealing with life and death. For sure, the professors were definitely part of that. Um, I think the other piece was the the clinical instructors. Um, so those people who were uh, working on the units with us. Um, I probably remember learning as much, if not more, from my clinical instructors than I did from my professors. Now, certainly the the value of the professors was clear, but I think with the clinical instructors was they were really able to see us at our most vulnerable. Um, I think about back to some of my first clinical experiences, and it was really scary. Like you're, you're in the hospital. Um, you may have never really had a ton of exposure there. They, they give you a patient to care for, which is a real living human being. And it's, it's a lot to take in, particularly when you are younger. And and maybe other people who are nurses or med students can can relate to that. And so I think those clinical instructors saw us where we were at uh, and and how we were feeling, the nerves and all the, the worries that we had and were really able to connect with us at that place and tap into those concerns and, and reassure us that at the end of the day, it actually was going to be okay. We would get through it um, and we would survive. Uh, the patients would survive. Everybody would be fine and we would come out of it on the other side. Um, just to further answer your question, I think the other piece for me too was the, the people that I was with, like the other students, the friends that I made. Um, I have one person in particular. We became friends in our first lab, we were lab partners, and she and I have been friends uh, ever since. And it was definitely that relationship and, and other friendships that really helped the process and, and helped you realize that you're not alone. 
um, you can work together, get through it together, and and you know emerge as kind of fully fledged nurses. Yeah, how important do you think it is for, especially you know, sort of uh, someone in that training leading position to make those emotional connections with their students? Uh, you know, it's a great question. I think it's critical. And the reason why I say that is it, it really goes back to that vulnerability piece is that when you are a student, you do feel quite vulnerable, right? You don't quite have the knowledge. You don't quite have the skills. You don't quite have the confidence that you need to do the work that you're being asked to do. So it's really important for, for the person who is leading you in whatever capacity to recognize where you're at and say, that's okay. Like, we're going to work with you where you're at. Um, I'm here by your side. I will help you. Um, I will provide the reassurance that you need, provide the expertise that you need, and we will do this together. So it's really, I mean, I guess it's in a lot of ways like any leadership position, um, but I think it's, it's quite a special one. Uh, because of the context and the environment in which you're in. Do you feel that right now in like even many workplaces that uh, that vulnerability is is recognized and that people are trained to recognize and deal with it? Yes and no. Uh, so when I think of healthcare in particular, I mean, certainly there's an increased recognition that mental health is a big issue for those who are in a caregiver role. Um, definitely during COVID, of course, our healthcare providers are in a more vulnerable position. You know, they're dealing with massively increased workloads. They're dealing with situations, moral dilemmas that maybe they've never dealt with. Um, they're dealing with worries around getting sick themselves. They're dealing with worries around passing it on to a family member. So, you know, all of those things put them in a place of vulnerability. Um, you know, the vulnerability can be there at any time, but certainly COVID has just exacerbated it and heightened all of that. So I think, you know, in a lot of ways, there has been some really big steps taken forward to recognizing that those feelings of vulnerability and the potential consequences of being in that vulnerable state. And at the same time, I think there's much more work that needs to be done. Um, I think back to my own personal experience in the early days, and there even when I was first starting out, um, there was just the beginnings of the recognition that we need to provide more support for healthcare providers. We need to recognize that, hey, things can get really tough. We need to provide the debriefs, the after action reviews, the mental health support. It was just starting to kind of come to the surface. Um, as I mentioned, strides have been made forward. But I think there still is a bit of that perspective that uh, if healthcare providers keep moving forward, that they'll be okay. Like they, they don't need that. They'll just, if they keep pushing forward, it'll be okay. Um, and that's not always the case as, as, you know, things are coming to light. Well, I can imagine that, you know, even, even if you've, you've been doing nursing for the last 10 years and then you step finally into that first supervisor position, it's, 
still a whole new job. So everyone's going to be looking for you for answers. And even if you do feel like you know the answers, this is now your first time having to give those answers. And the second guessing, the questioning, you know, it's, is, is there that support from higher management to be like, okay, I understand that this is probably what you're going to go through because it's what I went through and, you know, to support you through it. Sometimes and sometimes not. Um, so what I see with the people that I work through is that there is a recognition that it's a different set of skills. Like if you're moving from frontline care delivery to management, it's a very different set of skills that you need to employ. So sometimes there is that recognition and that support um, in that, you know, uh, maybe newer leaders are given uh, coaching opportunities, like they're given the opportunity to work with a coach, they're given the opportunity to uh, attend professional development opportunities, um, or seminars or workshops, or whatever the case may be. And sometimes there isn't that support. And that what I'm hearing from a lot of uh, frontline leaders, so those who are in these leadership roles who have moved from a clinical role, is that it get, some of them kind of get thrown into the deep end, right? And it's like, you know, sink or swim, figure it out, uh, sink or swim. And it's, it creates that, that place of, of panic and uncertainty because there isn't necessarily that support. And, you know, the thing I always think about is it shouldn't have to, like, it shouldn't be that way. The reality is, is anyone in a leadership role knows what it was like when they first moved into that role, um, knows what it was like to make that shift from a clinical role into a leadership role, um, because that's been historically what is done in healthcare is you take someone who's a really great nurse or somebody who's a really great doctor, and because they're doing so well, they become a manager or a director or a leader in some capacity. And yet, just because they have amazing technical skills or clinical skills as that nurse or that physician doesn't necessarily mean that they have the skills and the knowledge and the expertise that they need to excel in that leadership role. So it's really, you know, I see it as there's an opportunity to bridge the gap between the two. It's about how do we actually recognize the gap when it is there, have that awareness, and what do we need to do to, to give them the, the tools that they need? Because it's a very different tool belt that they need to be wearing when they're in that leadership role. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. There's a, lot of, there's a large difference between, okay, dealing with a staff member than dealing with a patient. So, I mean, you know personal issues, complications, you know, the uh, complications, I mean, obviously with a, a patient is much different than with, you know, staff members not getting along or a staff member needs to be disciplined or you need to grow, uh, obviously staff members as staff members, you know, and, and everyone has different personality traits. Everyone has different views and what works with one doesn't work with another necessarily. But we've, we've, gone, we've kind of gone down a little bit of a tangent. Let's get back to sort of, we, we've started through high school, you've gone through university. So where did you start? So you finished university, you know, king of the world. Where did you begin? Uh, my first role was on um, a medical and surgical unit at Foothills. 
It was actually a unit I was working as a nursing aide while I was a nursing student. And so I just naturally transitioned into a registered nurse role when I was there. Um, so the unit itself specialized in pulmonary medicine and thoracic surgery. Um, so it was a really great place to start. It was a pretty intense unit. Like it was definitely, you know, trial by fire in some ways. But I was definitely lucky because I had a lot of really strong relationships already with some of the staff on the unit because of working as a nursing aide. Um, and I had a really great mentor. His name was Jerome. And, uh, and, and he's awesome. Um, I'm not sure where he's working now. I've kind of lost touch with him. But uh, like, I will always remember how amazing he was with uh, everyone with his patients, like, the guy could just connect with everyone in every situation. Doesn't matter how stressful or intense it was. He could just connect and make everybody feel better. And he was definitely, he took on that role with me and uh, taught me a lot about moving beyond the skills that are required as a nurse, like moving beyond, you know, IVs and medication and dressing changes and all of that and moving more to the how do you make people feel like it's all going to be okay like that they are safe they can trust uh the, the caregivers that they have and that you know we'll work through everything together um so yeah i was really lucky to have him he really kind of set the stage for a lot of the way i approached what i did oh, that's really i mean that's amazing everyone needs that that person and it's so many years later like i you know you can hear it even just in your voice but i can see it it just i mean you brighten up at thinking of that one person like it it shows what one mentor one one great person what difference that can make that even now you know it still lights you up and you think about wow what what that person did for me how much that person grew me it sort of speaks to the importance of you know what one person can do and the difference one person can make, especially, you know, in that mentor role. Now, what was, so where did you go from there? So after you, you've been there, so how long did you stay and then where did you move on to? Yeah, I stayed there for a few years and then I wanted to try something a little bit different. So then I moved into infection prevention and control. So I did IPNC for just over five years. And with that, I actually worked at all the acute care sites in Calgary. Um, I spent most of my time, I would say, at Peter Lougheed and also the Alberta Children's Hospital, um, but certainly Foothills Medical Center, Rocky View as well. Um, I had had some stints there with infection control, um, and that was uh, quite a shift, and, uh, and it was amazing. I mean, I was working infection control, managing a, a lot of outbreaks, many different outbreaks. Um, I was doing that during H1N1 when that came on the scene. Um, it gave me the opportunity to foray into education, like providing education and training to staff, um, you know, from housekeeping all the way through to physician leadership. Um, and so it was really quite a diverse role. And I was really lucky to have that. How did you find your first sort of experiences of, of then teaching and coaching people? 
Yeah, it was definitely a departure from what I had been doing before. And it was, you know, I learned along the way. I think my approach in the early days was probably very different than, well, certainly different than what I do now. But um, it definitely challenged me in a lot of good ways. One was to be really solid on my expertise and to have confidence in that. Um, and the other one was really recognizing the day-to-day -day challenges that people were having. Like, certainly I had my own experience working frontline of those challenges, but really getting a sense of, you know, the question of why, why are people not washing their hands? Like, okay, so we know that there's barriers to this. So what can we do to address it? How do we get the message across that this is absolutely critical because I think inherently everybody knows that that is absolutely critical and it's about also creating the conditions so people can be successful at it so you know tying in that knowledge with the practice and removing the barriers to that practice um, so that you know safety is is first and foremost do you ever have moments where sort of uh like I could even see with like washing your hands would seem so, so simple. Do you ever find like you had emotional, sort of that personal bias where you're like, well, why aren't people just doing this where you had to put that into check and then go from a professional standpoint? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, there was moments of frustration because as you said, uh, you know, surface level hand washing or hands, um, hand hygiene seems like such a simple concept. And at the same time, I think, you know, we did a lot of research and a lot of investigation into what might be getting in the way of that. So it was the recognition of it may be a simple co concept and there are always these human factors that are going to impact that simple concept. So it doesn't matter if it's simple on paper or simple to talk about. It's much more complex in, in practice. So how do you work with that complexity and really address that um, and, and help to provide that motivation as well, um, considering the human factors that are involved? So where did you go after that? So where, so where did your career take you? Yeah, it was right about the time where I was needing another change. So I moved into uh, more community-based services, so health promotion and chronic disease management. Um, some of that was motivated by just needing a change, like a, a change of scenery, something new, a new challenge. Um, some of it was motivated by I had on my radar the desire to go back to school and do my master's degree. So it was a little bit twofold. Um, but certainly that work in these in community health was uh, very different. Uh, like I'd never been outside a hospital environment before that. Um, but it was great. I mean, I got the opportunity to, as part of my role, travel around Alberta to lots of really remote and very small communities. Um, so I've seen many, many small communities that I perhaps wouldn't necessarily plan on going to otherwise. And they were lovely. The people there were fabulous. They were super welcoming. Um, so I worked with community members on healthy living initiatives um, with my time in chronic disease management. 
I also worked uh, with diverse and vulnerable populations, working on initiatives. Uh, for example, cultural safety was one of the big initiatives that I worked on, um, creating a cultural safety approach for the province. So yeah, it was definitely uh, a learning curve once again, but it was something that uh, served me really well. What, were, what was sort of the big, what would you say would be the big difference you saw between working in uh, say Foothills Medical Center to then somewhere where it had a population of say a few hundred? I mean, definitely access is always a big thing, right? Um, when you look at a, a big trauma center like Foothills, it's got everything you need. Like anything you want, it's there. Looking at these rural communities, and certainly we weren't necessarily talking about acute care type of issues, but we were talking about healthy living issues. So some of these communities in the dead of winter, it's really hard to get out and be active, right? They don't have a rec center. They don't have a pool. Um, it's, it's really cold. You know, the population might be quite elderly, depending on the community. Um, so these are all factors in how do you help a community like that be as healthy as possible when their access to resources is pretty limited um it, they just do not have the same resources that say someone in calgary would have um you know how do you meet them where they're at and create change within the community from that community perspective um and certainly what was really interesting to me about some of these communities is that their spirit was remarkable. Um, I would go into tiny communities and they just had a can-do attitude. Like, okay, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll make it work. We, we love what you're saying. Um, you know, we, we want to take this on and we'll make it work. So that kind of can-do spirit was really quite remarkable about some of these rural communities. So after that, where did you head off to? Uh, then I did my master's degree in leadership through Royal Roads University. And shortly thereafter, I did my graduate certificate in executive coaching. And those two experiences really opened up the door for me to think about how I want to serve differently, uh, which led me to where I'm at now. Uh, as an entrepreneur. And so I left my role at AHS, which was terrifying, and started my own business. And um, yeah, I haven't really looked back since then. So what, what made you leave AHS? You know what, well, it wasn't actually about leaving AHS. It was more about going to something different. Um, so AHS was great. It was great to work for. Uh, it was more about I had that desire to be my own boss. I had that desire to create something that uh, didn't really exist. Uh, I wanted to be able to be creative, to be innovative, um, to really challenge myself, like push myself out of my comfort zone. So it was really about, I wanted to, to do this new thing, um, again, become an entrepreneur and, and see how it worked out. And fortunately, it worked out well. Now, why did you uh, go into leadership? You know, I've always been interested in leadership. Um, I've always been interested in what makes someone a fabulous leader and what makes someone maybe less than ideal and, you know, what that gap is between the two. 
And so I was also interested in like the theories and the research behind leadership, but more importantly, how do we take all of that and apply it to the real world? I think the other thing with leadership that really interested me is that it has so much impact. It has impact on every level of an organization from all the way at the top to all the way through. So I think that's the other thing that drew me to it is that if you can really support your leader and help to shape an amazing leader, you're, you're having impact everywhere. How have you grown since coaching others in leadership? I have learned a lot from the people that I work with. Um, I like to think that I give something to them, but I think probably they give more to me every conversation I have with them. Um, you know, the people I work with, they, they challenge me. Uh, you know, they're amazing, smart people. Um, they have a lot of wisdom. They have a lot of knowledge. They have a lot of expertise. And they're working in environments where there is no easy answer. There's no simple, like, one size fits all. So as I'm coaching them, I really have to stay on my toes to keep up with them and to keep up with understanding where they're coming from and the context that they're, they're working in. Um, and you know what? They constantly surprise me with their amazing ideas. Like they come up with stuff that I could never imagine. So, you know, in terms of how I've grown as a coach, it's really reinforced that idea that the people I work with actually do have all the answers within themselves. They just need somebody to help draw it out of them. Um, so I'm that external sounding board so that they can take everything that's in their mind that's like churning away and they can kind of put it on the table, play with it and figure out the answer. And so it's it's really um, a privilege to be able to kind of witness that and be part of that process. Now, I think everyone even listening can they've definitely had a leader or a manager that would definitely would be like that was the worst. And then, as even you said with uh, Jerome, everyone has a leader or a manager who was the best. What do you think makes that difference? I think it's the way you relate to people, the way you connect with people. I, I actually look to my mom a lot as inspiration for really amazing leadership because she worked many, many years as a senior leader in Calgary Health Region and Alberta Health Services. And, you know, we crossed paths a lot as we worked there. Um, and I've connected with many people that were part of her portfolio or worked with her or collaborated with her. And one of the things that they say about her is that um, she always made them feel important. She always made them feel like they were the only person in the room or the most important person in the room. Like she really had this ability to value them, value their opinion, support them, encourage them, empower them, all of those pieces. Um, there's a saying in coaching that everybody wants to be seen, heard, understood, and valued. And I think that is a perfect example of what a really good leader does is that they see people, they hear them, they understand them, and they value them. And and I think, you know, when people feel that they are valuable, they feel that their leader admires them, they feel that their leader supports them, 
like they can do anything. And so I think that's, that's what creates a great leader compared to somebody who maybe is not so much. Well, excellent, Leah. Thank you very much. That's all the questions that I have for you. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today at Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare. Also, if you like what you heard, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'd love to get to know you on social media, so check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.